0: The gospel is the good news that by faith alone your sin is imputed to Christ, and that by grace alone His act of obedience is imputed to you. If you have a bulletin, please open it and take a look. That statement is put in there for you, and this morning on this, the ninth installment of messages through the book of Galatians, I'm going to ask you. read it together. Let's do that now, together. The gospel is the good news that by faith alone your sins are imputed to Christ, and by grace alone the active obedience of Christ is imputed to you. That is not an exhaustive statement about the gospel. Uh, That is not worthy of editing the historic confessions with that statement as opposed to what's in there now. But rather, that is meant to be, in the simplest terms, a way for us to have a footing that we can launch from in order to better and more fully understand that, which is really what the letter to the Galatians has been helping us to do over the last several weeks. This is the point where I think it would be helpful to ask a follow-up question, and the follow-up question is, so what? Let's assume for a moment that we're all on the same page with this, that we can accept that and agree with it, but, but now what? I mean, how do I live as a result of that? What do I do or not do? What is the practical application When will I know that I'm actually measuring up to that? Who can I imitate because they've gone before me and done it well? Where are the key performance indicators? Why are there no instructions? These are the questions that often come to our mind when we first grapple with everything that has been done for us. Because there's something inside of us that understands there ought to be a response, but Now we're nervous about getting that wrong. We don't want to respond in the wrong way. We want to make sure that we please the Lord and honor Him without somehow accidentally trying to do the work over again that He's already done, and it puts some really well-meaning Christians in, in kind of a difficult spot. And so this morning, I just want to begin, again, a little longer introduction than normal, but I just want to begin by clarifying two particular terms, two words, that you're going to hear a lot, and, and you've probably heard them a lot already, and you're, and you're going to hear them going forward, and it comes from the Greek language, and it's one of the ways that we understand what a verb in the Greek language is trying to communicate, and these are not unique to the Greek language. You, you would have heard these if you understand English as well, so this isn't brand new, but Just listen carefully, because these are two really important words, and and I think if we can understand them in their context, it's going to make a big difference in how we get through the rest of this epistle, and then especially into our next series. So the first word is the word imperative. You've probably heard that before. An imperative is a command. An imperative, both in English and Greek, is a a verb that says you are supposed to do this. This. It's, it's an instruction. And the Bible is, has many of them. And a word that we're going to use to describe those imperatives is a simple word law. It's the law, it's the, it's the requirement, it's the rules, it's the expectation, it's the command. These are the things that you're supposed to do. And, and brothers and sisters, that's good. It's good that God has given us direction. Never for a moment think that we're trying to throw that away. We just need to explain it properly so it's not misunderstood. But these are the imperatives. There's about 1,877 of them in the Bible, so they're common. These are the instructions, and these are the rules. It's the law. But there's also another type, and it's called an indicative. And an indicative is simply a statement of fact. It just tells you what is you are this. It's not a value judgment. It's just a statement of fact. And the Bible has many of those too. And, you know, some of them uh, relate to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And those are the most important ones for us in this context, okay? Some of them relate, the indicative, the statement relates to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Those indicatives are good news. Those are gospel. Those are the things that we say to one another and sing to one another and build one another up with. That's the, the good news of the gospel. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are in fellowship with Christ, You belong to Him. You will be resurrected. You have your reward in Christ. You are a new creature, and on and on and on. Those gospel indicatives and statements are so crucial to just remember over and over again. Why? Because the gospel indicatives, the gospel truths, are the foundation for the imperatives. There are rules, there are laws, there are commands, but they're not given in isolation. They're not just dropped on us from God. Uh, They're not just sort of mentioned on His way out. When when He's leaving and He says back to us, I'm going to be gone for a little while, these are the rules. It's not like at, at, at home when you leave your children behind and you give the rules. Just yesterday we dropped Andrew off at Masters, that's our third now to have left. We're down to just one fourth child, the child that we barely got to know growing up because we were so busy with the other ones, I guess. Some of you are fourth children. You always remember the first couple names and then it's just like the rest. And, and, and it, it's going to be wonderful for him because now going forward, he gets the undivided attention of both of his parents. The intense degree of fellowship that he will have with mother and father is something he has yet to even begin to understand. He's so excited for it. He can't wait. It's just the three of us. You see, earlier on, when we left, and there was like a bunch of them, we just had to give some rules and say, just do this, don't do this, we're going out for dinner, we'll be back in a few hours. And sometimes we kind of think of God's law that way, that He ascended and gave us the Holy Scripture just so that He can keep us all under control until He returns. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not the way we should understand the imperatives in Scripture. Because, as a matter of fact, those commands, that law, is God's holy law. It's His holy requirement. It manifests His nature and His glory. The gospel is that perfect atonement of God having been done for us. And so you've got the holy requirement of God in the law and the perfect atonement of God in the gospel, and the two work together. Both are true, both are real, both are preached. But if you don't understand them, or if you run the risk of getting them out of order, or you blend them together, you end up with a real mess, and you're not going to work to obey the imperatives the way you should, because you have forgotten the fact that they are based on the indicatives. You see, it'll be a law without love. It'll be restriction without relationship. It'll be boundaries without benefits, and it'll be prescriptions without power and that becomes burdensome. And I know for a fact that some of you have grown up in burdensome situations. I'm always pleased to hear from you as you follow up with me on something that you've learned on a Sunday morning or something that you're going through, and I'm so encouraged to hear about where some of you have been and how helpful it's been lately to be released from the burdens of law that were heaped upon you because of Some of your backgrounds in in families or in churches, very legalistic, you might say. Fundamentalist backgrounds where everything was regimented, everything was controlled. Where you were only loved and appreciated if you followed the rules. Where mom and dad were only proud of you when you sat still, looked the way you should, acted and behaved the way you should. And because you were so desperate for their love and their affection, you became very good at conforming to the external law And the moment you were out from under their hand, you just completely lost it. You chased after everything that was in the world because you had never been truly informed. You had never truly learned. You had never truly been born again. You weren't a new creature. You were just a really good conformer. Others of you are not very good conformers. And so what you experienced was the difficult upbringing of being in a church or a family where you were always at odds with the people who were over you. And you were the black sheep, you were the rebel, you were the one that nobody understood, you were the one who was always messing up, and you have come in to this context with this history in your mind of having been averse to any kind of law or restriction because you knew you could never live up to it. So I hope this is helpful to both of you. I hope this is helpful to everyone. Because the Galatian Christians were a mix of both. The Galatian Christians were at risk in this regard. The false teachers had basically broken in. They were using all their clever arguments to lure them back into bondage under the Old Testament law. There was a Jewish system that was established, and that was all that they knew. Can we just, for a moment, give them the benefit of the doubt? Uh, You do remember, right, that they didn't have a Bible, that Galatians didn't have Galatians? Like, you know, Paul didn't ask them to turn to Galatians. Paul didn't send 200 copies, so like everyone had their own copy, you know, signed by Paul. Uh, This was maybe an early letter, but they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have even a copy of the Old Testament. It was very expensive, and it came on a whole bunch of scrolls. It was a very inconvenient thing to carry around. It was mostly something that a synagogue had if they were fortunate, but most of the time it was the temple that had the complete set. As Gentiles, they wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple. So just think about this for a moment. You're a Gentile Christian. You've you've come to faith in Christ. You've heard the gospel. You're not allowed to go into the temple. You're not allowed to hear the Torah read. You're not allowed to hear God's Word read. Uh, You're kept out from the synagogue because you haven't converted to Judaism, which required you to get circumcised, be baptized, and offer a sacrifice. You're an outsider. You're a reject. You're, You're ignorant, not because there's anything wrong with you, but because no one's giving you the information You're genuinely born again. You want to please and honor Christ. And then this Jewish guy comes along who is very well versed in God's law. The only Bible you've ever heard of is the Old Testament. It was a covenant made to his people and his fathers. It was for his tribe. And he comes to you with his Bible, which we all agree is God's Word, and it's filled with all of these rules and all of these restrictions. And he says to you as a Gentile, let me do you a favor and rescue you from Paul's sort of weak gospel, or maybe I would tell you, you know what, Paul would agree with me because after all, Paul is a Pharisee, and he was the enforcer of these laws. So let me help you and bring you along and make you a full believer. All you have to do is follow this law. Let's be honest, that would be compelling. It really would be. The Galatians aren't getting this letter because they're stupid. The Galatians are getting this letter because they're just like you and me, and they had been, in a sense, tricked by those who had a really good package of evidence to prove that what they were doing and what they were offering would have made them a more complete Christian. And it's into that context that we need to understand that these Gentiles, these Galatians, were at the risk of basically adopting a counterfeit gospel. And that's why Paul writes. That's why he's so passionate about this. He continues then to defend that gospel by showing how it's fulfilled in Christ. It's the fulfillment of all of those old covenant prophecies. They were pointing to this one, this Savior, this one who would come. And here's the key. Listen carefully, because this is the answer to everything. Paul says to them, he is the one who has come to fulfill these prophecies about the Messiah and the promises that came with that prophecy, namely, that when He came, He would bring the Spirit. This is all about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. Some of us are a little bit afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. But we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in great detail today and next week as well because that's really the meaning of all this. That's why we've called this sermon the Spirit of Power. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate reflection of the promise. That is why Christ said, it is better for me to go in order that I might fill each and every one of you. It's actually better that the physical presence, the incarnational second person of the Trinity, it is better that He go and ascend back to where He came from in order that the Spirit is then sent to indwell us. It's only better if we get more of Him, not less of Him. Would you agree with that? And what's even better is that not only is He come, but He's in us, He indwells us, and He empowers us to obey the law. Now the law is not a burden. Now the law is not something that is heaped upon you. Now the law is not discouraging and crushing. And you know what? Shame on anyone who tells you that it is. Shame on anyone who tells you that it is. Last couple of weeks, I've been uh, up in L.A. for a couple of events. One was for a wedding and then to drop off Andrew. And um, been meeting up with some people who I was closer with about 10 years ago, back when I was pastoring in that area. And I'm so encouraged to hear how many of them are learning and growing in this area as well. And we had great conversations about it, great things that we shared about what we're learning and and how we're growing. And I remember having a conversation with with one guy up there one time, and he had gone to to listen to this person preach, and uh, he came back saying just how great it was because he was so convicted by what this guy was saying that he almost questioned whether or not he was saved. And I thought... Why is that a good thing? And his answer was that he preached so heavy. It was so intense. It was so difficult for me to live up to what he was saying. It was so extreme. He laid out all of these instructions. He made me feel like I was such a failure in the Christian life that I I wasn't even sure that I was saved. And he took that as a good thing and came back and tried to work even harder. Kind of remind you that that's not the goal of explaining God's moral law. That's not a good indication of faithful gospel preaching. In fact, what I'd like to show you this morning is that Paul is going to actually go in the opposite direction than something of that nature. Paul, if you'll notice, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, begins the section by saying, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? He then goes on to give illustration after illustration. Just like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, he addresses the Galatians along with the others who were scattered in that area of the Roman Empire, and he talks to those Galatians as well, Peter does, and he calls them exiles. Exiles was a a term that, that would have made sense to them. They were like the Jews being exiled. And he says to them using all these Old Testament illustrations, talking about then Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael and Sinai, Jerusalem, circumcision, all these people, places, practices that the Jews were using against those Gentiles, Paul is going to take all of those illustrations and he is going to show how even as Gentiles, they are the true Israel of God. And so in chapter 5, that theme continues, and I think Paul is borrowing imagery of exile and redemption to prove that the Holy Spirit is greater than the law, that the law will never make you conform. It's only by the power of the Spirit that we're delivered from bondage, overcome the flesh, and obey that eternal moral law of God. Now, I confessed to you earlier, this is gonna be a long introduction, it's almost over, but I am gonna do a little bit more because I really wanna drive this point home. Paul is going to make it clear to these New Testament, New Covenant believers that even the Old Testament, Old Covenant believer was looking forward to the promised Spirit of God, and that it was only by the power of the Spirit of God that they were able to do great things for God. He's going to make that connection. But before I go there, (laughs) I want to clarify the word law. Because last week I made mention of it, and in our uh, service review on Monday morning, Uh, we talked about how, you know, it would be helpful if we went a little bit deeper into that to be clear on what I mean by law. Because remember, we said Jesus, of course, came to fulfill the law, but Jesus also got in trouble all the time for breaking the law, so how could it be both? That's a good question. That's a thinking question. That should be on your mind as you walk out to the parking lot. You're like, wait a second. If he came to fulfill the law, how come he was getting in trouble for breaking the law? And I mentioned just very quickly that it was rabbinic law versus mosaic law, but I didn't do a very good job explaining that, so uh, I'll do that now, I hope. Let me give you just a quick background. If you love history, if you love context, you're going to love this. If you don't, oh well. It's, It's good, though. You'll like it, okay? You'll like it. And if not, you can impress your friends. It'll be great but let's talk about this, okay? Really, really, really important. If we go back and we talk about the word law, okay, the first place we want to stop is about 1,400 years before Christ. We call it the law of Moses. You've all heard that before? The law of Moses. The law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, those were written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're the ones that comprise what is often called the law, the law of Moses. Now, is that law good? Yes or no? Yes. Thank you, class. We are off to a wonderful start. Now, after that, you have something called the mitzvot, which is my way of trying to pronounce it in Hebrew, which I know is terrible. I'm not even going to look over here at Andrew because he's like rolling his eyes probably thinking, oh man, seriously, it was awful. But somewhere around 400 BC or so, the rabbis took all of the law of God, the good law of God, the Mosaic law of God, and they made 613 laws out of that. Now, before you jump to a conclusion, let me explain this, because I know some are really negative on that. Here's what they did. They, they really took the law of God in the first five books and they tried to enumerate it into a list. There's nothing like inherently wrong with that. In fact, if you go through the list, like I did, I read all 613 of them most of them are directly out of the Torah. The the problem is sometimes they would take something figurative and they would make it literal. Let me just give you one example. In in the covenant law of God, in, in the Torah, He says that you should bind these truths on your arms and on your forehead. Now, when He says bind them on your arms and forehead, did He literally mean bind them on your arms and forehead? Like are you supposed to get a copy of the scroll, tie it on your arm? Of course not. But see, they took that literally. And so they they made that list. And you know you can always defend yourself if you tell somebody you're taking the Bible literally. Like that's a really easy defense, isn't it? I'm taking the Bible literally. Word for word. Okay. Well, that's why in Jesus' day you had people with these boxes that had the law written on it, literally tied to their forehead. That's why today some of the Hasidic Jews will still do that, not only in Israel, but also on the plane and also in the airport while you're waiting for the plane. I just saw both of those recently. At the right time, they'll get up and they'll figure out where east is and the point east and they'll start tying something around their wrist and they'll put the prayer shawl on and they'll get their phylactery out and they'll take out their prayer book and they'll start swaying back and forth and they'll start doing all of their religious services. Well, that was all a literal interpretation of that. And so what happened is it sort of grew into something called Halakha, which in 200 B.C., was taking all of these practical statements, there were 248 do's and 365 don'ts, like one for every day, you know, your daily don't, you could just do that. But this was the practical application of it, and it became very specific, but it also became very traditional. It instilled cultural purity. Do you remember last week how we said that the Jews were coming back out of captivity if you just have a brief understanding of their history, they were at their zenith during the United Kingdom under Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ended up splitting the kingdom. And you have the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. The ten tribes in the north were taken by Assyria around 722 AD. They're gone, the lost tribes. The other two tribes down in the south, they were taken by Babylon and a few waves, but call it 586 when it started, BC. And they were allowed to come back when King Cyrus came to power, but they came back as subjects not of Babylonia, but of Persia, later Greece, and later Rome until it was destroyed in 70 AD. So, so what you have there is a group of people coming back. They've got no land. They've got no sort of geographical boundaries. They have no temple built yet. The wall wasn't built yet. No capital city. And so, what you had is during the time leading up to that, very fastidious religious people were creating rules that would define them culturally would set them out culturally. We still have that, though, don't we? Don't we still have cultural Christianity? Don't we still have that where people say, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't X, Y, Z. Even though the Bible doesn't forbid it, I don't do it because it's part of my culture. They mark themselves out as being more moral because of these cultural things. And that just, whenever you start doing that and you adopt it, it gets worse and worse and worse. It's like any regulation. The moment it's put in place, it never gets weaker, it only gets stronger. And the the rabbis then developed these laws and these rules, and the meaning of that word, halakha, is very interesting. It's a word that means to walk in the way. Hold on to that thought, walking in the way. It referred in the New Testament to the tradition of the elders. Do you remember in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus was accused of breaking the law because his disciples didn't wash their hands properly. And he was accused of not following the tradition of the elders. That's an example of halakha. Because nowhere in God's law does it say how to wash your hands. It just says you have to wash your hands. It was a ritual purifying. But somebody came along later to describe exactly what that means. Oh, listen, everybody, it's always the same pattern. The Bible says something pretty general Kind of like trust the Lord and your, your conscience and, and the Spirit in you to tell you exactly how to do that. And somebody comes along and they say, no, here's literally what it means. Do specifically this and don't do specifically that. That's so attractive to some people who can't trust themselves to make a right decision. And so I'll find somebody who will tell me exactly what that means. And it's exactly what was going on with them. And so they had this very, very specific way to wash your hands. And if you think that's just silly stuff Jesus dealt with, I went on YouTube and found a rabbi who, write, who does these YouTube videos on how to follow this law so that when you come into the synagogue on the Sabbath, you know how to do it properly. He goes through the whole routine. It takes a long time to wash your hands properly. You start off with your less dominant hand washing your dominant hand. You say, well, that's a little bit awkward. Exactly, he says. That's the point. It's meant to make you stop and think about the fact that this is not practical. This is for your own holiness and it goes through all the routine of how to do that. And then you have to be very careful when you're, when, before you dry your hands that you don't turn your hands upward, because if a drip of water comes down past the part where you have washed, and then you put your hand down again, you've got the unclean part of your body, water touching the clean part, and you've got to do the whole, the whole thing over again. And that might sound absurd to us, but that's what Jesus was dealing with if you find yourself railing against those sorts of bizarre cultural restrictions that happen even in your Christian community, then you have the heart of Jesus. Be thankful because He hated it too. In fact, He loved blowing up that stuff. Now, again, for some of you, this is not new. It's reinforcing. For some of you, 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 you understand that. You believe that, and then and, and this will just help amplify it a little bit. And for some of you, I know this is category bursting. This is paradigm shifting. This is making you very uncomfortable because you very much like being told what to do. And I want to just gently encourage you to move forward out of that. This is not antinomianism. This is not throwing away all moral restraint. This is understanding it in light of the gospel. These halakha that came in the 200 B.C. that the Pharisees were responsible for putting together, had some pretty specific rules, not only on the hand washing, but I'll give you a couple others. For example, walking more than 2,000 cubits, which was half a mile from your home on the Sabbath, was considered a violation of this law. You couldn't go more than half a mile. And and I'm being serious. The way that some Jews got around that was that when they got to the half-mile mark, they would turn around and they would walk backwards. There's no rule about walking backwards. It was against the law for a woman to look into the mirror on the Sabbath. The rabbi said she might see a gray hair and try to pluck it out, and that would be work. Can you imagine living under the tyranny of a system like that, that had a rule for everything? Some of you are like, yes, I grew up in a house like that. Yes, I went to a Bible college like that. So, in direct violation of this, Jesus comes with a whole new paradigm. Now, there's a couple of other things I want to say very quickly. The Mishnah is something that happened after Christ. You might hear of that today, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was taking the oral tradition of the rabbi's interpretation of the Halakha, which was the interpretation of the mitzvah, which was the summary of the Torah, And they would teach this, and it was taken from the oral tradition into the written, and that written tradition is then what is often studied, and that's called the Talmud. There's a Jerusalem version, a Babylonian version, and most of your modern-day Jewish students of the religion study the Talmud much more than they study the Torah, because they they become experts in the words of the rabbis, not the words of God. That's a lot of introduction, I understand, okay? But I think it'll help us just to brace ourselves for what's really happening here, because I know what you might have been thinking is, oh my, he's got this text to cover, it's got all this big long list, what is he gonna do? Because you can't preach a list in an expository fashion without doing a word study and showing me everywhere else in the Bible if that word shows up. We're supposed to look at the hairs on the legs of the ants on the bark of the trees of the forest, not, you know, the forest, what are we gonna do? Peace. Be still. I think you'll see it all comes together very, very easily. It's just like a slow-cooked lamb chop. It just comes right off the bone. hmm be good on a rainy day like this, wouldn't it? All right. The argument of the text is this. The Holy Spirit is greater than the law. The Holy Spirit is greater than the law. And when I say law, in this case, which law am I talking about? I'm actually talking about the law of God that is good, but the Holy Spirit is even greater, and I'll show you why. I believe there are three main divisions here. Number one, we'll see the power over bondage in verses 16 to 18, the power over the flesh in 19 to 21, and the power to obey in 22 to 25. Power over bondage, power over flesh, and the power to obey the law. Verse 16 begins, but I say, to apply the argument of everything that had led up until this point, so you really have to have in your mind everything from the sections we read earlier, but I say this, sort of summarizing everything, that love is the fruit of faith, not works. He tells them to walk, present active, indicative to walk. You need to be able to do this. It's a command. It's the regular word for Walk. But it meant more to them because we said earlier, remember how the law was called, the the walking in the way? They understood what this meant. They are being told by somebody else how to walk. And so when Paul gives this imperative, he's saying, no, I'm going to tell you how to walk. They're telling you how to walk, but they're wrong. I'm not telling you don't walk. I'm going to tell you how to walk. Walk the proper way. Don't walk by the law. Walk by the Spirit. That's what he's saying here. Notice it. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Look to Him the way that the Jews did in the wilderness, whether it was the pillar, whether it was the fire. Look and follow Him. This is the command. And if you do that, then you will not gratify, literally bring to an end. You will not finish. You will not accomplish. You will not perform the desires of the flesh. Now, that desires, that's the strong desires, the disordered desires, the wicked desires of the flesh. The word itself is neutral. You've probably heard this before. Desires, they're not inherently wrong, but in here, they are the bad ones. The desires of the flesh. There are two words for flesh uh, that are used in, in the Greek language. One is sarks and one is soma. The word sarks is flesh, like the stuff you're living in right now, this sort of cursed, decaying flesh that gets old, will eventually die. That's that. Soma was a word for the body, more, more like a, sort of your, your metaphysical versus your physical, it's just who you were, your body. It's also used of the body of Christ. But here it's your flesh. It's the wicked things that you do in the flesh, in your cursed flesh. Verse 17, 4, the desires of that flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other keeping you from doing the things you want to do. It's amazing, isn't it, that he puts it this way? The word want there is actually translated, you might wish to do. There's these things that you would rather do, you might wish to do them, but the main obstacle in doing the things that you know please the Lord is your own rotten flesh. We can all relate to that. We know sometimes the limits. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? What? weak. Sometimes it's weaker at one time than other times. It's weaker when it's hungry. It's weaker when it's tired. It's weaker when it's distracted. It's it's, it's weaker even at times, but it's always weak. He says that's always going to be at war with the spirit that is in you. But there's a great truth here. He says that that flesh does keep you from doing what you want, but, verse 18, if you are led, it's happening to you. It's a middle verb. It's happening to you. If you're allowing yourself to be led, if you are following, the word follow seems very active, but you can't follow unless you're being led. You're receiving from the Lord that leading. If you are led, literally brought along by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Being brought along by the Spirit gives you the lift to overcome the gravitational pull of your flesh. You see, it's always there, but the power of the Spirit can pull you above it. Birds don't fly because they have overcome the power of gravity. In case you're wondering, I'm not a scientist, but I take it on good counsel that that's not what's happening. When that bird stops flying, what happens? (laughs) It just sinks like anything else. That bird overcomes gravity by flying. Is it doing something? Yes, it's doing something. But what's happening is that the very power to make it lift up off the ground is a power that allows it to soar, but the moment that's taken away, it falls. And we're not much different. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under that law. Now, you would have thought that he would say you're not under the flesh. But what's interesting is that instead of trying to just simply defy gravity, we try to make laws against it. We try to outlaw it. Instead of just defying the flesh and living by the Spirit, we say, I would rather make laws to protect me from ever having to succumb to the flesh, and this is where the man-made laws come in. This is where God's law become man-made laws and everything becomes this massive burden to try to do everything we can to clamp down on the flesh. And yet the harder we try to do that, the stronger the flesh gets, the more discouraging the battle is, and Paul wants to lift these Galatians out from it. If you think circumcision is going to make you a better follower, if you think obeying God's dietary laws from the old covenant are going to make you a better follower, you're wrong. It's actually going to make it worse because you're trying to control the flesh with law. And he says the only way you're going to actually experience power over the flesh is with the Spirit. Number two, this is power over the flesh. Verses 19 through 21, what is the flesh? What does it look like? Here it is, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're brought to light. They're made visible. They become obvious. They are sexual immorality. That means fornication. Fornication impurity, what is stained or rotten, sensuality, meaning something with no restraint, idolatry. I believe this was really in view here as the worship ceremony. Idolatry for the people who were living in that day would have been very akin to what Paul has to address with the Corinthians. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says to them, you cannot go after prostitutes. That wasn't saying you cannot go after these women who are standing on the street corner the way that we might think of that, what he had in mind was the temple prostitutes, uh, the ones who would uh, tell you that's how you worship the false gods, and he says that's why you can't unite them to the body of Christ. He says to them you cannot be engaged in that kind of idolatry. That's where the sexual immorality came from. Much the same here in this region of Galatia. That's why he says idolatry is the problem. Not only that, but sorcery. It's the word pharmakia. This was the drug induced kind of magical arts that would cause people to lose control. And enmity, hatred, often towards God, but often towards others as well. He carries on, strife, which just means contention. It was a very common word, sadly, even in the church. People who are contentious, people who are jealous. It's the word zeal. Sometimes it's good. In this case, though, it's obviously bad. Fits of anger. Literally fits of wrath. He says that the the way the flesh works is that the flesh manifests itself sometimes in wrath. It's a wrathful, angry person. Filled with hatred. He says these are all characteristics. But he goes on. It's not just that. It's also rivalries. This was a selfish ambition. In the Greek language, it meant to seek followers through gifts, or a mercenary, a bounty hunter, a self-seeking person who tries to to win over people to himself or herself. And then envy. Uh, This, uh, or sorry, after rivalries comes uh, dissensions. That's a great word. It, it, It was only used here and in Romans 16, 17. Catch this. The word dissensions literally meant to stand apart. It's that person who who doesn't want to be with the rest of the crowd. They're going to stand over on the side. They're not going to be with everybody else. They're going to do whatever they can to make you come to them. Man, there are lots of people like this in the world. These are toxic people. If you've got this kind of person around you, you know. You just let them be by themselves. They, They gain no greater joy than sort of standing on the corner, doing something to make you come to them, and then forming their own little group around them. That's what ultimately it means to be somebody who manifests dissension. Also division, another word for sect or a personality cult. This is where heresies began. Heresies always begin around people, not just around ideas. So there's some leader he has in mind here, a division. There's also envy, which unlike jealousy, is really the joy at other people's misfortune. Jealousy says, I want what you've got. Envy says, I don't want you to have what you've got. Envy says, I don't even care if I get it. I just want you not to have it. It makes me happy to see you unhappy. This is definitely a desire of the flesh. Divisions, covered envy, drunkenness, obviously. Orgies, probably better translated carousing or reveling. It was only used here and in 1 Peter 4.3 and Romans 13.13. It's a word that often was tied with the other activities of drunkenness and idolatry and sorcery. It all kind of went together. And that's why he says at the end, and things like these. I believe he was generically talking about the works of the flesh, the way that in the Old Covenant, God describes the works and the practices of the pagan nations around Israel. You see, God gave Israel a whole bunch of rules as it related to this to mark them out as a very different kind of nation. Everything I just described here is the work of the flesh, the work of the nations. And Paul is saying to these Galatian believers, look, if you're trying to understand how the old covenant fits in, here's a good example. All of the things that God rescued his people out of are pictured here. And that's why he summarizes it this way. It's so great how he summarizes it. He goes like this, I warn you, Again, literally, as I warned you before, that those who do, and that verb is structured in a way that means those who are continually doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. Those who are constantly doing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me first tell you what, how not to think about this, okay? This is important. How not to think about it. Don't think about this as saying, okay, well, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to have it over here on the side because if I ever do one of these things, it's going to be an indication that I'm not a Christian. Or if I ever do one of these things, it's going to be an indication that I'm not in the kingdom of God. Or maybe you look at somebody and say, well, because they have done that or they do that, that must mean they're not in the kingdom of God. He's not saying that there is a list here that if you violate this once or if you even have violated it in the past as a believer, that it indicates you're not a Christian. What he's saying is that people whose lives are characterized by this are those who are in the flesh and not in the Spirit. When Paul gives the list in 1 Corinthians, it's a different list. So he's obviously not looking at an exhaustive thing here. He's just saying that in general, things like these, somebody who is always habitually, unrepentantly, casually, carelessly, vigorously chasing after these things, It's not about those things. It's about the fact that it reveals, those things reveal what's not inside of them, namely the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? That's what he's trying to get at. Far from it being a list that scares them. Because what happens with that Gentile, that former idol worshiper who is in the church in Galatia, who is a born-again Christian, genuinely converted, and he has this horrible episode in his life where he goes completely off the rails and he has no way to soothe himself except to go down the street to the idol and the temple and be with one of those temple prostitutes. Does that mean he's blown it? It's over you're done. No second chance. You're out. No. it's not saying that. That person, crushed by their sin, come back as a fruit of the Spirit in repentance and understanding and brokenness and contriteness and coming back in to the presence of the Lord and His people to receive forgiveness and restoration. We're going to talk about that in the very next chapter. Why in the world does Paul bring that up in the very next chapter if that weren't the possibility even in this church and even in this church? I really hope that this church, (laughs) I really do, I hope we have a, I know we have a reputation. I I know we have a reputation. Every church has a reputation. The church that we used to be had a reputation. The church this used to be had a reputation. And you bring the two of them together and we've got a reputation. There's more reputation than we know what to do with. But I hope, we can fix some of the bad and, 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 and bring out the good, which is this. That church is a place that understands the power of the gospel and the fact that God will redeem and that He will restore and that those who are broken under the weight of their sin find mercy and rest in the finished work of Christ and acceptance with the people of God. I really hope that's what we're known for. Not a place where law is heaped up in guilt and shame. And not a place that takes sin lightly, absolutely not, but a place that takes sin so seriously that when a person repents of it, we understand and we affirm and we remind them that it was so serious what you did that the father killed his son in order to pay for it. That's how serious it was. That That doesn't limit or minimize the seriousness of the sin. That actually brings it a little bit closer into the light. Now, He says that these people who are habitually doing this with no concern will not inherit the kingdom of God. Manifestations of that unregenerate flesh. If you keep your finger there and just turn over to Romans, Romans chapter 8 says this, few verses. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Meaning, sending His Son in a cursed body though He had done no sin and sending Him for, as a consequence of sin, and as a result, He condemned sin in the flesh. When He died, He took sin with Him. When He was crucified on the cross, as we'll see in a moment, He crucified sin with Him. He held on to sin and pulled it down to hell to pay for it once and for all. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not just in Him, but in us. Why? Because He gives us all of the credit and the merit of the fulfillment of the law. Who do what? There's our word again. Who walk. Not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Either you are alive to the flesh, you live for the flesh, you're you're all about the flesh, or you are alive to the Spirit, you understand that, and you live toward the Spirit. This is a fundamental shift in your inclination. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. (laughs) Indeed, it cannot, he says. Oh, do we throw away God's law? No, it's right there, everybody. It's the Spirit of God that helps you to joyfully submit to God's law not to throw it away. Law is good. Law is preached here for sure, but not without the understanding of the imperatives of what Christ has done for us. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, go back, if you would, to Galatians. Here, we'll wrap up. This is not only, as we saw earlier, power over bondage and power over the flesh, but it is also, as we just saw, power to obey the law. This is an indicative here, everybody. This is an indicative. You can't find an imperative in this list. The imperatives are not what Paul uses to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. He does not say, now you Christian, love as an order. Notice that. He doesn't say it. Some of you are like, wait a minute, I never noticed that before. Yeah, this is not a, this is not a list of do's. Go love, go be joyful. Go have peace. Have you ever tried to tell somebody to be joyful when they're sad? Have you ever thought, well, a Christian's supposed to be joyful, so I guess I better get at it? Somebody's sad, somebody's anxious, somebody's wrestling with something, and you walk right up to them and you say, you are, you are a call yourself a Christian? What kind of sinner are you? You go, go, go be joyful. Oh, man. Like, okay, i got to work on my joy. Go be at peace. I can't. I'm still lying up at night thinking about this. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my money. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my whatever. And all I can think of is my pastor up there wagging his finger at me saying, go be peaceful. What's the matter? You don't trust God? Is that what he's saying here? No. What he's saying here is that, that, that these are the things that will, will come out of you naturally if the Spirit of God is in you. You don't worry about that. It happens Naturally. Once you plant the tree, there's nothing you can do to make it produce fruit. That's what it does. If the root is there and the tree is alive, fruit will come. And so he says here, but the fruit of the Spirit, and I think there are three groupings, love, joy, peace, much more uh, internal to you, your love, your joy, your peace. It's just part of what comes naturally by walking in the Spirit and no longer feeling like you're under the burden of the law. And secondly, patience, kindness and goodness. Now, I know that this is not something that we can do completely on our own. It's in a relationship to others. Think about patience. Patience is a response, isn't it? You can't go out and just patience someone. I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to heap a pile of patience on them. No. Patience exists and is manifested in a situation where you would be tempted to be what? impatient isn't this amazing so for this fruit to manifest itself you put yourself into difficult circumstances where there are people who make you impatient and angry and all the things you shouldn't be in the flesh and you surprise yourself sometimes when you are patient with them because you realize that is not something that comes from me i am not a patient person i don't know about you i can actually say that about myself i am not a patient person i know that Now, am I working on it? Yeah, in a sense, but am I discouraged and I'm beating myself up because I haven't reached the the, the bar yet where I think I should be? No, because I know that in time that the Lord will produce that in me. He's promised He will, but it's only going to be microscopic compared to the time in the resurrection when I'm glorified and all of these things will be all that I ever do. Isn't that going to be an amazing time for us? Isn't it going to be amazing? You look at this list, this is going to be all you do perfectly to each other forever. I don't know if I'm going to have to be patient in the new earth. Maybe I will. If this is a divine attribute, something will happen there which will help me to give glory to God because I'm being patient. But either way, these things are going to be naturally coming out of us. Kindness, goodness, that's the goodness that only God can do. That's the why-do-you-call-me-good kind of goodness that Jesus says to the rich young ruler. And then this next group, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, These things is well done. The long-term view, how are we defined in our maturity? How are we defined in relationship to God? What does this look like when, when His fruit begins to really mature and it's ready? It is that faithfulness, that we know we're never going to be perfectly faithful. He's always faithful to you. He says, faithfulness will come from you because I'm faithful to you. Gentleness, the only way Jesus ever describes Himself in the New Covenant. Matthew 11 is gentle. Self-control, I think it's one that sort of covers everything. And he says this, notice, against such things there is no law, there is no limit, there is no restriction. It's like when you go to the the doctor maybe and they put you on a diet and they say there's all these things you're not allowed to eat. You know, you're not allowed to eat the donuts, you're not allowed to drink the soda, but you can have as much broccoli as you want. you're like, can I cover it in chocolate? When he says, against this, there's no law, what he means is, like, no one's restricting you. No one's going to say, you are showing a little too much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. You got to dial that back a little, buddy. No, he's like, this is good. There's no law against this. This is what is being produced in you and through you and to the glory of God. And notice this here is the way that we anchor everything back. We talked about the imperatives and the indicatives even though these aren't imperatives, they are meant to be seen in your life. How do we even anchor those? It goes back to the imperative truths. Look at how he wraps it up. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the statement. Oh, everybody, (laughs) that's the greatest truth. He's not saying it's contingent upon anything you're doing. He's saying this is you. If you are a believer, this is you. Right now, this is you. (laughs) You belong to Christ. You have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what happens when the person comes to you and they say to you as a small group leader or, or a pastor or an elder or somebody in the church, and they say to you, a disciple they say to you, I am, I am struggling with this sin. I keep falling into this sin. What do you tell them? Do you tell them, well, you need to work harder. You need to put more filters on your, your, your browser. You need to, to, to get up earlier and read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to do this, this. You need to do, do, do. Here's the prescription. Or do you say to them, brother, sister, let me remind you that you belong to Christ. Let me remind you that He has forgiven you. Let me remind you that His righteousness covers you. Let me remind you that He's put His Spirit in you, which is even more powerful than your flesh, no matter how strong it seems. Let me remind you that He invites you to Him to always bring your issues and cares and concerns and to repent. Let me remind you that he is on a hair trigger to save and restore. Let me remind you he depicts his father as the one who goes running out to the prodigal son down the road to scoop him up in his arms because he is coming back. Isn't that a much more encouraging way to deal with the ongoing plague of the flesh for the rest of your life? Doesn't that that give you hope? Doesn't that give you rest? So I'm speaking to you disciples and new leaders, make that the, the, the aroma of your counsel. It doesn't mean you tolerate sin. It doesn't mean you downplay it. No, of course not. But, but, but leave the person with hope. You always want to leave people from any kind of counseling, if you want to call it that, that goes on. You don't necessarily, you don't have to leave them with homework. You leave them with hope. Hope in the gospel is what you leave them with. verse 25, if… and by the way, this should say since. This is a first-class conditional clause. It should say since. It's not logical, it's conditioned. I won't get into that terminology today. That's for next week's introduction, maybe. I don't know. It's not logical progression, it's conditional. It's conditional on the previous verb. What's the verb? The verb is has uh, crucified. So, those of you who belong to Christ, Christ has crucified the flesh, its passions, its desires. Because He has done that, the indicative, because of what He's done for you, because He's crucified the power of your flesh, since He's done that, we literally have life by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step. Same metaphor of walking different word. Step is different than walk. The word step here is not a word that just meant to walk. It's a word that meant a lifestyle. Literally, it would be translated by the Spirit. We should keep living, following, walking. Keeps with that theme. Because you are alive in the Spirit, because of the new life given to you, because your old self was crucified, You can walk and keep in step with that spirit. In terms of the gospel considerations, there are two, and we've covered them already, but the gospel imperatives are based on gospel indicatives. Be reminded of that, folks. It's absolutely essential. And secondly, gospel fruit comes from gospel faith. The fruit you have comes from faith, not from working harder. Some will produce 30, some 60, some 100. There are different kinds of trees. There's different levels of fruit-bearing, different seasons of fruit-bearing, but there will be fruit. The point is that there's fruit, not how much fruit. You're not going to be put in line at the end and given awards because you're a hundred producer or a sixty producer or a thirty producer. He says there just will be fruit. It'll be different in this life. Look to faith, and somebody says to you, I put my faith in Christ, especially maybe if they're young or if they've been through a life that's been characterized by a lot of sin. Some people are tempted to say, well, we'll see. We'll see. You say you're a Christian. You say you believe the gospel, but we'll just sit back and watch to see if you, if you measure up down the road. And that's putting a lot of pressure on that person. Instead, why don't you just tell them, I'm, it's wonderful news. I'm so pleased to hear that. It encourages me so much. You know what? It's going to be hard, though. I know you've put your faith in Christ, but don't get discouraged because it'll be hard. There will be days when you do something that makes you wonder if you really did put your faith in Christ. But because you did, I believe that He will empower you and fill you and give you the strength to persevere until the end. And in the resurrection, you'll be glorified and perfect. And I want to help you and walk beside you along that difficult road. Because you know what? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Father in heaven, thank you for that wonderful truth. And as we lift our voices now in song, I ask that we would do the precious work of edifying and building one another up with these hymns, songs, and spiritual songs, that we would be able to celebrate what you have done for us in Christ and that it would be a massive encouragement and that we would leave here filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with love, because we manufactured it but because you've done it for us and you reminded us of all the benefits that have been earned on our behalf and that we will receive the inheritance for in glory in your name we pray amen